Have a seat if you've got a Bible. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. And uh, I'm going to try to preach what I was supposed to preach last week. David kind of hit on some of it, so I'll maybe review a little bit and then uh, kind of build on it. And so uh, for True Life, we're going to be doing a series. David's going to preach next week, but th- this is number one, and then kind of go with it after that. Kind of through our core values called who we are. And so our first core value says that we're Christ-centered and culturally relevant. And so I think that one of the most divisive issues in the church in America today is this issue of how we relate to culture. Uh, should we uh, or contextualize the gospel or not? And if you don't know that term, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the message. And, and frankly, it's a little strange to me because if we go on a mission trip to somewhere else in the world, we're not going to have any debates over whether or not we should do this. But it's not like that we're just one homogenous culture in the United States where everybody's the same in every part of the country or even within particular geographic areas of the country. There's many cultures. Although, as David correctly pointed out last week, uh, there's a book called The World is Flat. You know, in the Internet age... Uh, People are becoming more and more the same around the world. There's even research that shows among younger generations, like accents and dialects are diminishing because there's more and more of a common culture because of the Internet. Uh, That's one of the things that I've seen over the years in going to Honduras for about 19 years now, is over those years, uh, I've seen them adopt many of the baser, more negative parts of our North American culture because of the internet. But again, you know, culture, uh, if, if we want to define culture, uh, this is a definition I like by a, a missiologist by the name Leslie Newbigin. He says, it's the sum total ways of living developed by a group of human beings and handed down from generation to generation. So it's language, it's how we dress, it's how we do family, it's education, it's the arts, it's morality, it's just every part of of life, kind of corporately, that's what our culture is. And, uh, you know, there's different cultures. And uh, what what I want to say to us today is, while while the message is always Jesus, it's always the gospel, the, the, method, the, the message never changes. Our methods have to be affected by culture and in relating to people where they are. You know, our mission statement is meeting people where they are and help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. I don't think we can meet people where they are if we're just completely oblivious to culture. So here, here's a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. So... Um, you know, in, in Uganda right now, one of the things they're doing while they're there is they're doing BTCP graduations. BTCP is Bible Training Center for Pastors, and, it, and it's a ministry, a training ministry that's in, in many places around the world. The material's the same, other than some places. Obviously, it has to be translated into a, a, a different language. But we also do this here at True Life, and there's a Morristown group. And so we had our first graduation in December. Well, at that graduation in December... 
I mean, some, some, we have some people here in this service who graduated from that. You know, we celebrated them, we gave them certificates, gift, recognized them, had a nice dinner, someone spoke. I mean, we dressed up a, a little bit, nobody was in a suit and tie or, or, or that kind of thing. And, and so we had a BTCP graduation. Well, I've seen some pictures of our team, and uh, they were in a, like a cap and a gown, like you would see at a graduation, holding live chickens. <laughs> now, I don't know what that means exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like my number one deep spiritual question for them uh, when, when they get back. But it's clearly a cultural thing. Culture affects ministry. You know, when I was in Uganda last year, I learned, you know, they use the king's English, you know, British English. And so it's English, but sometimes words are different. Like, you know, here, like, we would call these pants. You know, I could I'd walk up to and say, hey, I like your pants. That wouldn't be a good thing to do in Uganda, though, because the word is actually trousers. And if I walked up to Shane and said, hey, I like your pants, really what I would be saying is, hey, I like your underwear, <laughs> which is clearly a little awkward, right? <laughs> or it could be problematic in some cases. And so it's a cultural kind of thing. You know, it's a different English. But, again, if we're going on a mission trip, you know, we go to Honduras, you know, different language, different food, just different. And, and listen, I'm not saying that everything in culture is good or right. You know, I believe there's things we can receive in culture. There's things we have to reject in culture. There's things that are clearly evil and sinful in culture. There's other things we can redeem in culture. But if we don't understand our culture at least, how do we minister to it? How do we know if we should receive this or reject this or, or, or redeem this? And so, you know, here's an example, I think, of how it would, uh, you know, relate to here, okay? And so I'm old enough, kids, believe it or not, I, I was alive before there was an internet. <laughs> I mean, it's changed the world, right? I was alive before there were cell phones, Right? We've gone through the progression of rotary dial on the wall to, you know, cordless phones to, you know, we had a bag phone. Uh, you know, there's just, it, it, it's changed the world. But, you know, with this, like, you know, back in the day when I first started in ministry, it was important for a church, you know, to have a yellow pages listing. Right? So somebody could look you up. Well, I actually learned something a couple of weeks ago. We got this business Yellow Pages thing in the mail. I didn't even know there was a Yellow Pages anymore. I don't know that I quite get the point to it. But, you know, for, for those of you who have moved here from somewhere else and you were ch checking out churches, how did you learn about us? In most cases, you went online and watched a service before you came, right? So, um, if we said um, we need to be in the Yellow Pages, but we can't have a website... Internet's bad, would that be wise for ministry? But like some of you are like, we kind of compromising because we've changed this? You understand, you know, I think the Internet is something in and of itself is morally neutral. It's certainly used for evil, but it can be used for good. So it can be something that can be redeemed or it can be something that can be bad. But, you know, if you stay stuck in the past, then you're going to miss opportunities to minister to people. 
So we talk about being Christ-centered. Again, Jesus is always the message. The Bible is always the, the standard. But then you want to be relevant in the sense, be able to engage with the culture, meet people where they are. As David talked about last week, and I'll just kind of review this, you know, some people see Christianity as being against the culture. Either we run and hide, you know, like like the church is a bomb shelter, or we're trying to take over uh, the, the, the culture. I don't think either one of those is biblical. Certainly, you know, Christianity with the culture, where we're just trying to fit in and be like everybody else, and where we compromise on issues like sexuality and gender and abortion and those kind of things to fit in, clearly, that's unbiblical. But we're to be in and for the culture. Jesus taught us that we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to be salt and light. And a light can't shine if it's hidden under a basket, is what he said. Uh, Jesus said, John 17, 18, he said, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The word sent is the Greek word apostello. It, it literally means to be sent on a mission. It, it, it's the word from which we get apostle. It's the word for a cross-cultural uh, missionary. It means to go on a mission from one culture to another culture. Jesus was the ultimate missionary because he left the perfect culture of heaven to come to this sinful culture of earth. But what that verse is saying is, is in the same way he was sent on a mission to save us, we are now sent as, as participants in that mission of salvation to share the good news of what he has done to save us. And you can't do that. You can't share the gospel with people and being separated from people. So with that said, uh, I, I want us today to look at, at, at the example of the, of the Apostle Paul and how he did this. So we're going to look at a pretty good chunk of a, of a chapter of Scripture in Acts chapter 17 and, and just see how he lived this out, how he was Christ-centered, but he engaged cultures where they were and how they were. And, and, and the point of this is, is maybe twofold. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, I want you to hear Paul's messages here and consider your need for Christ. If you are a Christian... I want to challenge us on our need to share Christ and hopefully equip us with some wisdom in how to best go about doing that. Okay, so Acts 17, starting in verse 1, this this would be what's known as Paul's second missionary journey. And so they're traveling around, it says, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And, and you'll, you see this a few different times in the New Testament, but then it says, then Paul, as his custom was, in other words, this was his habit. This, when he went to a, a, a Jewish area, when, we, when he went to where there was a synagogue, this was his common methodology. It says, he went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. In other words, his message was from the Bible, which would have been the Old Testament then, all the Bibles about Jesus, that 
the, the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to come. He was going to be crucified. He was going to rise from the dead. And that Jesus uh, Christ is the Messiah. And, and so it says some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Does our world need to be turned upside down today? The book of Acts shows us how the early church did that. You know, something, I don't know if you've heard about this in the news, it's kind of an aside, but it's something to, to, to pray for. You know, the last large-scale revival, spiritual awakening in the United States was the Jesus Movement in 1970, and one of the places that it started was Asbury College. Same thing is ha- has been happening this week. They, they have been, they had a chapel service on Wednesday that hasn't ended yet. I mean, I'm talking 24-7 since then. There have been students, and now there's people coming from around the country, you know, joining them in prayer and worship and, and in confession of sin. So we should pray that, that God would fan that flame and there would be a mighty move of God that would just turn our world upside down again with the gospel of Christ. One, one other aside here before we move on. In verse 6, the end of it, when he says, brought them to the, to the rulers of the city, this is just interesting. I want to share this with you. Um, you know, the Bible gets attacked in a lot of different places in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways that it's been attacked down through the years is the Greek word here is, is uh, I mean, in English it would be polytarch. And this was like the only place in ancient literature that they found it. So they're like, Luke's wrong, Luke's making this up. Until archaeologists found about three dozen inscriptions using this word with about half of them actually in the Thessalonica, including it being inscribed over the gate of the city. So before you dismiss the Bible, wait till all the facts uh, are, are in. So this is what happens in Thessalonica. And so they got this mob, and so they, they have to move on. And, and then they go to Berea. And uh, just for time's sake, I'm not going to read through that. But in, in so they minister there, and it says the people are more fair-minded, and they search the Scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so. But then in verse 15, it says, So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And, and, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, When he saw that the city was given over uh, to idols. Uh, One of the the ancient Roman historians who was kind of a comedian, kind of like our version of Jimmy Fallon or something like that, quipped that it was easier to find a god than a man in, in the city of Athens. And of course, you know, Athens, although it wasn't at its height at this point, was one of the great cities of the ancient world, full of culture. But, you know, there were these statues, these idols, these plaques and inscriptions to, the, to, to different gods throughout the city. But notice Paul's response. I mean, it says his spirit was provoked within him. We'll talk about what that means. But then verse 17 says, therefore, in other words, this was his response. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. So again, he goes to the Jews, 
if you, if you want to connect with a spiritually interested Jewish person, then where are you going to go? You're going to go to the synagogue. But also in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there, the Greek agora. And this is where the people are, are going to gather. And then it says, certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And the Epicureans, their philosophy of life was avoid pain, embrace pleasure, because there's no afterlife, so just eat, drink, and be merry today. The Stoics were more, no, uh, you know, happiness is found in virtue and self-control and, and, and those kind of things. Two opposite philosophies, but both godless philosophies. And it says that these these philosophers encountered him. So he was speaking, they heard about him, so they, they go to him. And they say, some said, what does this babbler, it was an insult, want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let me just say something here real quick. Um, you know, Shane sent me something when he knew he was preaching on this, and I mean, I've heard this kind of stuff before, but some people say that Paul was a failure, and he didn't really preach the gospel in, in Athens, and then he changed after that when he went to Corinth, because 1 Corinthians 2 says, I preached Christ and him crucified. Now, I think it's a little bit cheeky to be trying to correct the apostle Paul, but I also think in this case, it's a little dumb, because let me just ask you a simple question. For a resurrection to happen, what's the one essential thing that has to happen before there's a resurrection from the dead? Somebody's got to die. So if he's preaching the resurrection, isn't it pretty obvious that he's also preaching the crucifixion? Okay, let's move on then. Um, <laughs> that's pretty clear, right? Sometimes... Bible commentators have more degrees than they do sense. But <laughs> anyway, uh, verse 19, it says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sounds like Twitter today. Um, verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. He starts out tactful. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So understand, in the midst of all these idols, and historians and archaeologists have, have confirmed this, basically, you know, they, they had all these gods, but apparently to make sure they had all their bases covered, and just in case they had missed any god, there, there was some kind of statue or plaque, altar, uh, that said, to the unknown God. And Paul takes this for his text. Christ-centered and culturally relevant. Now, he starts out tactful, but we're going to see he preaches a very pointed message. Because understand, he's talking to a bunch of idol worshipers who are also philosophers and who think they're really smart. So, to the unknown God, he says, Therefore, to the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. That's pretty direct, right? 
your idols here are not God. The real God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. It says, nor is he worshipped with men's hands. You can't make God as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That means that you and I and every person who has ever lived was born when they were born, where they were born, and to whom they were born by the sovereign plan of God. That one, or those two verses in and of themselves would rule out racism as any kind of biblically defensible possibility, would say that it's sinful. It would say that there is nothing and no one who is an accident or no one whose life is without value or purpose or meaning because we are the intentional creation of a sovereign God. And so here's the purpose, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. And here's some good news, though. He is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, Christ-centered and culturally relevant. And he quotes one of their poets and says, for we are also his offspring. In other words, he takes a poet who I'm sure wasn't biblically sound and redeems it, takes something that's true, and uses it to support his message. It says, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and bands devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And, and you see in those closing verses the possible responses to the gospel. Some people mock, reject it. Some people accept it. Some people consider it and say, maybe later. But here's the thing <coughs> if we're going to proclaim the gospel, we got to make it clear enough that people know who and what they're actually rejecting or accepting without any lack of. Of clarity. So when I read this text, here's the big idea that the way to minister to an idolatrous culture, it's not by cursing the idol worshipers, but it's by going to the idol worshipers where they are, engaging them in a culturally relevant way, and proclaiming Jesus to them. That's what it seems to me that Paul did here in both of these cases. You know, we're all idolaters at heart. That's our root issue. And as Christians, sometimes it's easy for us to, cult, to curse the idols of the culture when really our focus needs to be on repenting of the idols in our own hearts. But, you know, the Jews turned their religion into an idolatry. What did Paul do? He went to where they were. And he proclaimed Jesus to them. These Athenians were idolaters. 
What did he do? He went to where they were, and he proclaimed Jesus to them. And you see how he kind of tailored his message to each situation? I mean, the message was ultimately Jesus in both cases, but the starting place in the synagogue was the Old Testament Scriptures. The starting place on Mars Hill was with this idol. This, But he took it to Jesus, but he met them where they were in order to try to help them become fully devoted followers of Christ. So, as we think about that big idea, I just kind of want to break it down a little bit and just give you three words to, to try to help us apply this. I want to talk about our motivation, our methodology, and our message. So what was Paul's motivation here? Well, if, if you look at, at the text in um, verse 16, it says his spirit was provoked within him. He was angered. He was bothered. He was frustrated. He was exasperated when he saw all these idols. But what's interesting about this, and John Stott points this out, if you ever seriously study the book of Acts, you need to get John Stott's commentary on it. But he points this out in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word that's used there is the word that's used in the Old Testament when it talks about God being provoked by idolatry. Uh, when, you know, the Bible t- teaches us that God is jealous, that God is zealous uh, for his own name. You say, I thought jealousy was bad. It is for us, but since God is the one and only and there is no one on his level, uh, he is jealous for his own uh, name. And, and so the idea here is the motivation is that Paul was zealous for the name of God. It it bothered him uh, that there were all these idols because here were these people and they were giving glory to these false gods instead of to Jesus Christ, the one true God. And and so as we look around and we we, we minister to people, what's our ultimate motivation? And I'm going to be honest, I, I found this convicting because, you know, I minister sometimes because I know I ought to do it. It's a matter of obedience, or which that's a good thing. Minister sometimes because I know people need it. I believe in heaven and hell and want people to know the, the freedom and the forgiveness that's found in Christ. But I think the idea here is the ultimate motivation is that God would be glorified. And how is God ultimately glorified? He's glorified when we honor him when we recognize Jesus, when we turn from our sins. Like some of the scriptures we read earlier, you know, God gets glory through the cross because the cross shows us that we have nothing to offer and salvation is only in Christ and it's only through what he has done. And so salvation is found in us humbling ourselves and us glorifying him because he paid the price that we could never pay. So if we're... If, if, we are driven by the glory of God, then our motivation is going to be making him known to as many people as possible. See, John Piper put it this way. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. 
Why do we go to Honduras? Why do we go to Uganda? Why do we send people out uh, to Washington? It's, it's because uh, if people aren't worshipers of Jesus and they're not glorifying him, that's what God's worthy of and that's what people need. Missions exist because, wor- because worship doesn't. It seems there's a connection here. As we worship God, as we know him better, as we're more zealous for the glory of his name, then we're going to be more motivated to want to share the gospel with other people. So, what's our motivation? Second, think about our methodology. And there's eight things that I want to point out to you here, just as far as how Paul approached this. First of all, be intentional. I mean, he was intentional. We read in the early verses that it was his custom to, when he went into a city, what'd he do? He reasoned with them in the synagogue for three weeks. When he was in Athens, He wasn't just like a tourist taking in all these sites and all these great cultural things. But he was intentional about engaging people with the gospel. Are are we intentional in our day-to-day lives in in, in thinking about as we encounter people, turning conversations into spiritual uh, conversations? Are we thinking about people's need for Jesus? Are we thinking about the opportunities to encourage people or or to share some kind of truth or to share a verse of scripture or or, or to share the gospel with people? And, um, you know, it's easy to miss those opportunities. I'm guilty of that. And, you know, sometimes when, when we try them, sometimes we do well and sometimes we don't. But let's at least try them. I mean, I'm thinking about a time this fall where I did a good job with that. I was on the golf course and, and, and I met a guy and we played a few holes of golf together. And, you know, he was asking about what I did. And Tom was a pastor and he asked some questions. And I turned the conversation to Jesus and, and, and the gospel and was able to share an apologetics message I did with him. And, and, and sometimes that goes well. Sometimes it goes not so well. One day this week, um, I was the only staff person here, and and this was on Thursday, and I answered the phone. And that's, you know, I I don't answer the phone very much, despite, you know, May told me about answering the phone one time. They don't let me answer the phone much, and you'll understand why. You may want to hire somebody else after you hear this story. So guy calls. It's a sales call. He he asked if if he could speak to the owner of the business, and I'm trying to turn it into a spiritual conversation, so I say, this is a church, there's really probably not an owner except Jesus, and he was so confused, (laughs) he just kind of mumbled, I'm sorry, and hung up, and you know, I tried, I was trying to be intentional, didn't go too well, but you know. At least I tried. So I just said, try to be intentional to think about people's need for Christ and turning it into a spiritual conversation and do better than me. So, uh, but, so, so be intentional. Be insightful. Paul looked at these places and these people through spiritual eyes. We looked at a passage last month when Jesus encountered a multitude and he sa- it said that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That's really what Paul did here. So do we see people as, you know, these sorry sinners, as, you know, these idol worshipers, as these whatever our pet peeve sin is? Or do we see people as sheep without a shepherd? Do we see them as fellow sinners, fellow human beings in need of the grace of God? Again, do we see 
you know, to, to, to people's hearts and, and their need for the gospel. And, you know, I think the church in the United States needs to get past all this culture war stuff. We're not in a culture war, we're in a cosmic war. We're in a battle with principalities and, and, and powers. And the answer is Jesus, and the answer is the gospel, and, and, and the answer is making disciples. I mean, I think Robbie Gowdy's right when he says, desperate times call for disciple-making measures. And if we make disciples, some of those disciples are going to engage on specific issues and, and, and make a difference. But be insightful. Listen, changing laws are important, but it's not the ultimate answer. Listen, praise God that Roe versus Wade was overturned. But has that solved the abortion issue in the United States of America? Absolutely not. It's still a battle for hearts and minds, and it's a, it's a battle to make disciples and see Jesus change people from the inside out. Be prepared. Paul was ready to talk to Jews. He was ready to talk to Gentiles. The Bible says to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Are you in your Bible are you taking advantage of opportunities? Like, you know, we offer an evangelism class here to learn more about how to share your faith. Is there somebody you tag along with as they share? You know, be strategic. He had a plan for one place, he had a different plan for another place. Be bold. I mean, he was bold. He preached Jesus. He he told these idolaters that, you know. These are all false gods. This is the true God, and he's going to judge you someday. But at the same time, be tactful. I mean, he didn't start out and say, you bunch of pagan heathens, you're going to hell. <laughs> right? He said, I perceive in all things that you're very religious. He was nice. I mean, again, he engaged them where they were. He was bold, but he was tactful. Be contextual. I mean, he contextualized the gospel, and we'll talk in a, in a minute about what that means. Again, to meet them where they are, to answer their questions, but ultimately, be biblical. Contextualizing the gospel is not compromising the scriptures. Contextualizing the gospel is not compromising the scriptures. What the Bible clearly teaches is 100% non-negotiable. We're not helping anybody by compromising or you know, just trying to sand the edges off of difficult truths or not talking about uh, things that we think would be uh, unpopular. Uh, the church in America tried that and it was a colossal failure. Truth is truth and the only way that people are being saved is by the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need our help. But we're talking about, again, a methodological kind of things. We're talking about, listen, the, the gospel is offensive. The cross is a stumbling block. But let's not create unnecessary stumbling blocks to people. That's a part of contextualizing the gospel. Listen, when we started True Life, you know, that was some of the goal and some of the methodology. And, we, and we've changed our strategy and approach some over the years I've grown we were a little more attractional when we first started, and then the focus has been to be more missional. But at the, at the same time, um, you know, we don't want to create unnecessary stumbling blocks. You know, why do I not wear, preach in a suit and tie? Because that's a stumbling block to a lot of people. There's nothing wrong with it. 
But, I mean, there have been so many people who've told me over the years that I feel like I can't go to church because I don't have the clothes to dress up in. And, of course, you know, culture's changed now, and there's just, that's just kind of different. But, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've had over the years tell me that they were kicked out of churches because they weren't dressed in their, quote, Sunday best. That's not a biblical issue. That's a man-made legalism. And so in using technology and music style and and things like that, we have to take into account who we're trying to reach. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, when you think about, I'm more talking about us going to people, but, you know, when people come, we want people to come who aren't saved and hear the gospel. Now, listen, a, a church service is for three things. Number one, it's primarily to exalt Jesus Christ, to worship Him. Number two, it's to edify the saints. But it's also to evangelize people who don't know Christ. You read in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I mean, the context is talking about uh, tongues and prophecy and those kind of things. But Paul very clearly taught them to be unaware or to be aware of there being non Christians in your assembly, in your gathering, and to, in how you do things, not do things in a way that are just going to confuse them and push them away. And so, again, the idea of you know, core values, it's kind of who you are, it's why you do what you do, that's why we do what we do. But when it comes to contextualizing the gospel, well, what does that mean? I'm going to show you a short video clip, it's just a little over a minute. It's Tim Keller, and I think this is about as good of an explanation of it as you'll hear. So the point, there's a lot to be said about that, and I'm running out of time, but just to kind of sum up what he said, let's make sure people are actually rejecting the gospel, not how we're presenting the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, Paul put it this way. He says, For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men 
that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. So he related to people in different ways where they are without ever actually compromising the message. Now let's close by talking about the message. What is the message? The message is the Bible. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. I mean, if you look, when he was in the synagogue, verse 2, it says, Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. I mean, the Gospels in the Old Testament? Well, it's throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he could have shared Isaiah 53, 6 with them. That says, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray, but he is laid on the, the iniquity. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone our own way, but on him has been the laid the iniquity of us all. He, he could have shared Psalm 16, uh, 10 with them. I mean, we know he did this back in Acts chapter 13, which talks about, you know, the Messiah rising from the dead and the Holy One uh, not uh, seeing corruption and, and those kind of things. So he preached Jesus from the Old Testament to them. But, but think about with the Athenian philosophers and, and the message with them. Again, you know, he started where they were. He started with this, uh, with this altar. <clears throat> but then look at what he told them, which is really all biblical. He said, God's the creator. We're the creation. He said, God who made the world and everything in it. He said that God is the sovereign ruler. So we're to submit to him. He says, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He said that God is self-existent and self-sufficient, which means that we are dependent because he says that God does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He said that God is a giver, so we're to trust and worship because of what we graciously receive. It says that he gives to all life and breath and all things. Um, He says that God is personal and knowable so that we are to seek him. Uh, He said, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And, And he said, ultimately, that God is the righteous judge, so we are accountable. He said in verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So what he's doing is he's contrasting the nature of the one true God with these fake gods. He's pointing to Jesus who rose from the dead, which presupposes the cross. Jesus is the answer, but he presented him in a way that related to and engaged with the culture that he was dealing with. And so, if we're a follower of Christ, this is what we're called to do. We're called individually to take Jesus to the people in our lives in a way that they can actually truly hear the gospel that meets them where they are, that engages them, that that answers their questions. You know, as a church, in our ministries, in our outreaches, but even in, in our church services, we are called to proclaim the gospel. We're called to stand on the Word of God as the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, the truth 
for all ages, true for all people, in all times, in all places, under every circumstance. But not to do it in an outdated methodology or a mean-spirited, heavy-handed kind of way. But to do it in love, engaging people where they are. We're called to make disciples who live out their faith in the world, who are strong enough to not be sucked into the world, who are strong enough to be a light to the people around them. And that's one of the things I like about our student ministry. We're intentionally trying to prepare people not for now, but when they go to college or when they're out working, when they're out on their own. Uh, you know, the future will tell the tale of the fruitfulness of our kids and student ministries. I think that's the right kind of approach for a church to take. So, if you're a Christian, living this out, are you motivated by the glory of God? Are you sharing the gospel, and are you doing it in a wise way that connects with people where they are? But if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure, the message is Jesus. The reality is that we're all idolaters. We've all had false gods. We're all prideful. We've all sinned. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And their only hope, our only answer, the only way we can be made right with God is not through our religious efforts, our good deeds, not through anything we do, but only through Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Because he is the Son of God. He, in fulfillment of the Scriptures, in fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, came and died, and he rose from the dead. But we're going to have to answer to him. That's what Paul said here at the end of this. He says he commands all men everywhere to repent. And to repent is to turn from our sin and our self-will and our pride and living for ourselves and to turn to God and to surrender to Jesus as Lord, trusting what he has done for us. But the good news is... He'll forgive us, and he'll give us this relationship with God. He'll set us free. He'll make us new. He has done for us what we can never do. He paid the price. You don't have to try to earn what he's already purchased. Just receive the forgiveness that he offers you by receiving him. And if you've never taken that step, I'd encourage you to do that today. Again, some of you... Maybe you are a Christian, but you need to publicly confess your faith through baptism. I'd encourage you to let us know and take that step next week. But let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes. And I just want to give you a chance to respond.